Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. My name is Seyrun. I live in Reykjavik, Iceland. I read The Guardian every morning. I realize that this is something that I would like to pay for. It's a service I value. It's journalism I respect. The Guardian brings me the quality I like. So I realized, hey, this is something I, I should be a part of. Hello, my name is Brian and I live in Norwich. I decided to become a supporter of the Guardian newspaper because I like the quality of its journalism. And I also felt it was time to make a stand because I'm getting tired of the journalism I'm seeing in other newspapers that are owned by rich owners, where there is a lot of bias into their editorials. I hope this inspires some of you to become supporters too and in your own small way, make a stand. Hi, my name is Wesley. I live in uh, Utrecht in the Netherlands. And I recently decided to become a Guardian supporter because it's well, one of the few news sources that I feel is still delivering accurate news. You know, it feels like I can trust the Guardian. For me, that's, I think, the most important thing. And especially when they said we don't want to do too much advertisements and we don't want to become dependent upon other people can, that can manipulate the news, I felt that it was good to support our democracy. If, like Sigrun, Wesley and Brian, you would like to join the growing number of readers who support our independent journalism, then go to gu.com slash support slash podcast. The Guardian. People choose not to look and the industry rely on the fact that no one looks. And people have this idea that there's these lovely grazing cows and fields and, you know, pigs frolicking and it's just, it's not true. At the moment, there is no political movement surrounding veganism. Until we can have actual proper organization from grassroots and single-issue causes, all the way up to large umbrella big tech institutions, we can't really move forward as a movement. That's Angela and Thomas, who we'll be hearing more from later. But first, welcome to We Need to Talk About Veganism, the latest of our monthly podcasts in which Guardian journalists and industry experts tackle a subject suggested by Guardian supporters and answer their questions on it. I'm Decker Aikenhead. I'm a Guardian journalist, and until 18 months ago, it's fair to say I'd given veganism about as much thought as I'd given deep-sea diving or origami. In fact, I'd always taken slightly juvenile pride in being someone who would eat anything. I did not want to be the pious bore or the nuisance dinner party guest. But after a serious illness, I realised I did need to take my health in hand, and so I gave veganism a go. What I thought would be a brief experiment appears to have turned into a permanent state of affairs, but I still struggle with the vegan identity. In other words, I'm still trying to work out how not to be a pious bore or a nuisance dinner party guest. And I'm hoping today's podcast can help with that. We've had a huge number of responses from supporters, 
willing us to dig deeper into the veganism movement and the impact of adopting a plant-based lifestyle. I'm joined by my panel of experts. Not all vegans, I should add. It is not an evangelical panel. We have Joanna Blythman, who's a food writer, an investigative journalist and broadcaster. We have Damien Carrington, The Guardian's environment editor. We have Mira Soda, a food writer and author. She writes the weekly Guardian column, The New Vegan, although she is not vegan herself. And we have Rosie Wardle, who's programme director of the Jeremy Collar Foundation, and she manages the foundation's strategic programmes to end factory farming. Welcome to all of you. Can you all say whether you're a vegan, vegetarian, pescatarian, omnivore? Just a little detail to help set the scene, please. If we can start with you, Joanna. Uh, I'm an omnivore, Decker. I, I, I eat everything, my, my, but my red line is no factory farmed uh, animal products. Okay. Um, there's quite a few different names kind of buzzing around for the, the for the way I uh, eat, which is reducitarian, climatarian, flexitarian. I'm not sure which one of those I am, but uh, I certainly eat very little meat, never eat beef, um, and I'm mostly vegetarian and quite often vegan day to day. Rosie? I'm vegan and have been for about five years, but I'm definitely not kind of evangelical about it, and I will eat things like honey. I'm not too concerned with kind of vegan wine and that kind of thing, but Primarily, my diet is plant-based and vegan. Thank you. And Mira? I eat a vegan diet around five days a week. And for a couple of days a week, I will eat um, meat, fish, eggs and dairy. But I will be very selective in where my meat comes from. I mean, I also draw a line at factory farming. I don't believe in it. Um, I mostly buy my meat from a single butcher. I like to buy sustainable fish. Great. We've got quite a broad range here then. So to kick things off, we're going to hear from Guardian supporter Jonas Campus, who is in America. My name is Jonas Campus. I'm from Switzerland. I'm currently in Redding, California, and I'm 17 years old. I'm since three years now a vegan, and the reason why I became vegan is because of climate change. Meat consumption is one of the biggest contributors to climate change. We need to reduce the amount of greenhouse gases produced by the livestock industry to a bare minimum. And I know in California, climate change is, is a big issue, but I think meat consumption is not well addressed right now. What I can talk about in Switzerland is that, for example, the meat industry is subsidized by the government. So that would be one of the things that we could change that would help a lot because then the prices automatically go up. People could afford it less often. I think my generation has a different perception on that. Most of the people that went vegan are under 30 or a really big amount of it. And we are still young, so we try to explore different ways of lifestyle. And we are really concerned about climate change. Rosie, I've got to be completely honest here. Before I became a vegan, I had no idea about the relationship between meat eating and climate change. Can you just explain a bit about what Jonas was talking about there? What is the contributory cause towards climate change of a meat-based agricultural economy? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, across the board, if you look at the kind of environmental impacts of meat and livestock production, they are vast. So not just climate change, but from climate change to pollution, deforestation, biodiversity loss and kind of resource overconsumption. These are hugely intensive diets. And eliminating or reducing animal products is one of the most effective ways to have a positive impact across these issues. So if you look at the climate factor alone, as Jonan mentioned, I mean, 14.5% of all anthropogenic 
caused by humans. Greenhouse gas emissions are um, created by the livestock sector. So that's more than the global transport industry or cars, planes, trains combined. Um, and Did you say cars, planes, trains combined? Yeah. So the whole global transport industry is around 13%. Livestock's around 14.5%, which is substantial. Um, and if you look at methane in particular, which is obviously this concern around methane as a greenhouse gas, given that it has higher global warming potential than um, carbon dioxide, over 20%, 20 times um, that global warming potential, livestock causes 39% of global methane emissions. So it's huge. And it's now kind of well established by research bodies and NGOs, Chatham House, for instance, that we need to address meat consumption, dairy consumption, and livestock production across the board in order to kind of stay within a two degree warming limit and that kind of dangerous um, two degree temperature rise. And that's the current situation, which is scary in itself. But if you look at the kind of trends towards increase in meat consumption, particularly in developing countries, that becomes even more startling. I mean, if you look at global meat consumption, it's expected to rise 76% by 2050, if you look at projections currently, and that's against the 2007 baseline. So we need to kind of make severe cuts in that trend in order to tackle climate and all the other related impacts. What I don't understand is, how can it be that Everybody knows about the implications for climate change of transportation and a surprisingly small number of people would be familiar with these extraordinary figures that you've just said. I I mean, I know it's not an either and all, but how is it that fossil fuels has had such a loud voice and the question of of an animal-based agricultural economy having such a small voice in this? Well, I I mean, I think the research around this has only kind of become more in the public eye in the last couple of years, um, whereas the impact of the energy sector has been known about longer term. Also, I think it's a matter of the fact that diet is a very personal thing for people. And um, whereas, you know, it's easy to kind of campaign around energy and change in fossil fuels, for instance, when it comes to diet and choices for what people are eating every day, then that's a kind of more sensitive issue, which perhaps governments haven't been as willing to get involved in. Damien, you're nodding. Yes, no, I agree. So um, two things that got me interested in this whole area maybe four years ago. One was the Chatham House report, which Rosie alluded to, which showed that um, on, on current meat consumption trends as people get more wealthy around the world, there is literally no way we can beat climate change unless we deal with meat. Right, that was pretty stark. The second thing was the film Cowspiracy, which um, you know people will have seen or they haven't seen, which uh, has its flaws and it has its real strong points as well. And one of its strong points is addressing the question you just asked, Decker, which is why don't people know about it? Because if you're an environmental NGO campaigning on climate change, telling people to you know not fly, not drive have fewer children's tough enough without saying don't have a beef burger so although you might say it's actually easier to stop eating a beef burger than it is to have stop having children or driving a car it feels to me like a a more manageable individual change that we can make i I completely agree with you but um, i think there's kind of maybe an emotional attachment to food where ngos and governments don't really want to go there that's Um, what you you were meaning about being very personal you mean that it feels intrusive yeah, no, just, I mean, I've you know, been doing environment journalism for 10 years and um, I've never seen any of the campaign groups go on that, except in the last couple of years when they're starting to talk about, you know, eating less meat and have a, uh, a diet that's, uh, you know, more attuned with the climate. 
What do you think about Jonas's idea about ceasing to subsidise the meat industry on the sort of basic supply and demand principle that if the prices go up, people will buy less meat? Isn't that a fairly straightforward way of tackling this? Yeah, I think subsidising something which um, is, is so harmful. I mean, we're not talking about all cattle farming, but in terms of the big cattle ranching, the feedlots where they just stuck in a muddy patch and, and you know, chucked grain at them all day all night um, very inefficient and uh, very damaging pollution which Rosie mentioned runs off into oceans creates dead zones uh, there's also a big problem of antibiotic resistance which is driven by giving those drugs and that's a potentially existential threat to humanity so subsidizing that seems completely crazy in terms of prices you know people have started talking about meat taxes because you know we tend to tax things which are harmful like cigarettes say and if you balance that with subsidies for healthier foods and ensure that uh, the least well-off are able to still afford healthy diets, then uh, meat tax is probably, you know, a good idea. Rosie, you must come up against this objection to the meat tax the whole time, though, which is essentially that that means that rich people get to enjoy meat and poor people don't. And why, how can that be fair? Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's often the argument that you encounter. But I think it's established now that across the board, if we reduced meat consumption in, you know, what has developed as the Western diet, then that would have benefits for on, a, on an individual health level on a societal level for health and also in terms of positive environmental consequences. And interestingly, on the meat tax point, I mean, when you look at kind of the pathway that other commodities have been on to get to that taxation stage, whether it's, you know, tobacco or sugar or carbon, they are either causing vast health issues or environmental issues. But for meat, it's interesting that it cuts across both of those. So in a way, the argument for taxation is even more compelling at least the subsidisation question needs to be addressed, I think, because right now the cost at the supermarket doesn't reflect the true costs and we're having really kind of excessive subsidies across the supply chain, particularly on the commodity side when it comes to feed crops for animals, which is um, kind of driving this monocropping culture where all the crops are going for animal feed. So the government can do one thing, which is to stop the, stop the subsidies... But obviously, if we follow the analogy with, with climate change and emissions, the government's done a massive amount in trying to invest in green energies. What's it doing in terms of trying to invest in smart farming, invest in the development of, sort of protein, plant-based protein alternatives? Not a great deal is the answer, but it is starting to come onto the radar uh, in that um, in the UK at least um, we have this moment of change, which is uh, Brexit, and uh, there's talk about trying to encourage public money, the subsidies going for things called public goods. So there's a, a bit more interest in, in, in looking at that, but really uh, not a great deal up to now. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I mean, I think we're seeing much more movement from companies and business rather than from governments, which is interesting. And surprising, one might think. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, mainstream food companies are embracing this, well, the trend that we're seeing in the growth of plant-based food and flexitarian diets, but also acknowledging that as businesses, they're having huge impact if they're reliant on animal proteins that, and that in order to future-proof their business models, they really need to shift that reliance and develop a more diversified protein offering. And is this a generational thing now that voters of Jonas's age are simply going to be demanding from the government that they do that in a way that possibly voters of my age and older simply aren't? Or am I being too complacent in thinking that we can just wait that the argument has already been won? 
Oh, it certainly hasn't been one, and um, you know, as, a, as an environment writer, you see the urgency of these issues every day, and uh, this is a particular issue which uh, action, both from governments, although they can be slow to regulate, but as Rosie says, you know, companies are moving and people are moving. Um, the thing is, once, I mean, you, you express that yourself, once you've tried eating less meat, it generally works out pretty well, you know, it's, it's quite a nice experience, <laughs> you know, you experiment more in the kitchen, you find new recipes, you end up kind of uh, discovering things like nutritional yeast flavor and liquid smoke and all these crazy ingredients and it's quite fun so I think actually it's moving pretty quickly but it can't really move quickly enough given all the problems that meat-based industry causes. Okay let's move this on now and we're going to hear from Guardian supporters Angela and Roisin who contacted us with their thoughts on animal welfare. My name is Angela Gasparetto. Uh, I'm originally from Canada but I've lived in London for the last 13 years I became vegan about three and a half years ago. I was vegetarian since I was a child. The primary reason for me is for the animals. When I learned what the dairy industry was, what the egg industry was, it was an immediate shift. There was no transition for me. Yeah, going back to that disconnect, the meat is presented to you know the buyer in the grocery stores in clean plastic wrap. There's no veins, there's no blood, there's often no bones, like nothing, nothing to reveal where it came from, which is a slaughterhouse. And before that, you know, the industrial farming, nine times out of ten, if not more than that, they've come from a, a really horrible, horrible life. And milk presented to the consumer, clean of blood and pus, away from the dairy cows who are continually over and over again impregnated only to have their calves taken away from them, often emaciated, crippling at the end of their lives, eggs presented in like neat cartons away from the horrendous conditions that laying hens are kept in. Even if they're called free-range hens, chances are they're in a big, huge warehouse, no access to the outside. People choose not to look, and the industry has really jumped on that and rely on the fact that no one looks. And people have this idea that there's these lovely grazing cows and fields and, you know, pigs frolicking. And it's just, it's not true. It is a horrific, horrific industry. My name is Roisin McCauley. I work for an organization called Animal Charity Evaluators. We try to find and promote some of the most effective ways to reduce animal suffering. And one of the more promising and unique approaches that we've seen is to try and pursue legal personhood for non-human animals. Uh, The organization that works on this is called the Non-Human Rights Project. They litigate on behalf of great apes and elephants and some marine mammals. Normally, it's the animals who are more charismatic and more likely to generate empathy from the wider public. It's difficult to say whether gaining legal rights for a chimp or an elephant will ever trickle down to farmed animals, so pigs and cows and chickens, those in animal agriculture where there is vast and immense amounts of animal suffering. And it could be possible we do need to have more public support, more anti-speciesist attitudes within the public to then be able to get the legal and permanent improvements in the ways that animals are treated. Joanna, this emotional disconnect that Angela refers to, the people choose not to look syndrome, what do we do about that? Do we just not like knowing where our food comes from if we think it's going to make us uncomfortable? I have to backtrack quite a lot, Decker, because I'm, I'm concerned already in this discussion that we've talked about meat and agriculture in a very generic way using global statistics which are you know liable to be to to be at least controversial they're not uh, set in stone and i find it so do you mean that the picture is much better in this country well certainly first of all um 
what we're seeing now is we're seeing a whole new generation of vegans who have been radicalised online by documentaries like Cowspiracy, What the Health, um, people who haven't got, to come back to your initial question, much understanding of how any sort of food is produced, let alone meat, who have been emotionally engaged with this, um, which I would say is worst-case scenario, broad brush, highly selective. A lot of it is not much more than propaganda. This has allowed a sort of elision of di- very different styles of meat production. So you have now the impression a lot of British vegans think that animals in this country are kept in feedlots. There are no feedlots in the UK. doesn't exist. They do in the States, but they don't exist here. We don't use growth hormones for dairy cattle. Now, obviously, I've said at the beginning, at the outset, that I'm totally opposed to factory farming of livestock, but sustainable farming, organic farming, which is pasture-reared, actually seems to me to be long-term a much more sustainable option than the sort of vegan vision, which we call it plant-based in inverted commas, which is actually not challenging in any way an industrial farming model, as far as I can see. So when, you know, Damien says that he's excited to be able to use liquid smoke, I mean, I grimace because this is just a completely synthetic chemical there's got no real anything in it. I'm sure that if you were to backtrack and trace the sort of pedigree of liquid smoke, you'd find a lot of animal suffering, not least testing and all sorts of things. I think we have to remember that if you're not going to have meat, and as I said, I'm making it clear that I'm talking about well-produced meat. If you're saying no meat, no meat at all, it's totally bad under any circumstances, then you're going to have to find a lot of protein to feed people. And, you know, these big companies that Rosie's telling us are getting very excited about vegan food. I'm not surprised because they specialise in ultra-processed food. And as we all know, food processing is a licence to print money. That's how you add value to anything so a potato there's a limit for how much you know you can charge for a potato even if it's a boutique variety and hand washed by virgins in spa water and sold by marks and spencers <laughs> but if you uh, then process that into a vegan plant food burger yeah you're going to make a load of money so my plea my plea to everyone here and in this discussion is to try and refine it because i think i can agree with a lot of old-style vegans, I don't share their ideological position which it's wrong to kill an animal. On that, we disagree. But in other ways, I very much respect them. I think they're thoughtful people. I have to say that I think the new sort of vegan script is facile. It doesn't dig deep enough. It isn't nuanced enough. And it it is very much a, I've got my line and I don't want to be troubled by statistics, facts, or any sort of refinement of that argument. And I don't think that's good enough, to be honest. And Joanna, you you use the phrase that they're being radicalised online. Yeah, yeah. And which I assume you're talking specifically there are these documentaries like Caspiracy, Earthlings, Forks Over Knives. In your view, are these documentaries irresponsible propaganda, spreading irresponsible propaganda and lies? I don't or? blame them for for trying to do it. What I do is that the, that you know so many people are taken in by it. Or sorry, talking about Damien here, but you know an environment correspondent who has a very, to my mind, sophisticated and knowledgeable uh, specialist view on his area, but 
has this still, you know, this emotional appeal from um, from these documentaries, which I think, I, yeah, I'm not saying they're irresponsible. What I'm saying is if you actually take them to pieces, and I would say if anyone is interested, you should look at Nina Taichos, who has had a good look at what the health and, you know, look to all the talking heads, who the people are, what their backgrounds are, what their credentials are. It really, you know, you can ride a, a cart and horse. Sorry, that's perhaps a, a fortunate <laughs> uh, image through those arguments. So all I'm saying is, you know, we can't we can't sort of go into the detail here. But all I'm saying, can we please have a sort of reading book to level conversation because if it's going to be you know all meat is bad veganism's the coming thing it's only a matter of how it happens and when then I for one am sort of you know I'm sort of stranded here because I can't really uh, I think that I I think that's those are not the real the real issues and it's based on a false premise that whole it's based on a on a a false and unsubtle premise and I also think it's counterproductive because what I want to see and I'm pleased to see um, Rosie talking about her institute is concerned with ending factory farming she didn't say it was a vegan operation she said it's ending factory farming and this is where we can all agree this is the enemy factory farming so what veganism isn't the only alternative no and i think it's very polarizing because new wave vegans seem to have a very much you're either for us or against us and actually now it's getting silly i mean i i've i'll give you some examples um recently there's been a wave of vegan nominally vegan attacks on meat uh, businesses. So, when you say attacks? Um, well, I'll give you an example. In fact, this is not even meat. Uh, a forager, a very well-known forager in, in the south of Scotland, uh, had a, an, an, uh, a piece online about hedgehog mushrooms and was trolled mercilessly online of vegans because they thought he was doing something with hedgehogs. A woman who gave a, a, a workshop on game butchery using really ethical... Um, well cared for, well reared venison. Same story. Butcher in butcher in in Newcastle. Um, vegan uh, graffiti on the window, bricks through the window. Farm shops being you know made miseries of online festivals of things like animal products with picket lines outside of vegans saying you know a cheese festival for example i think we get the picture You're can i respond animals. to some of this <laughs> damien on you go right so first of all no one at all condones that kind of behavior good of from, course a, not. from the tiniest minority of people okay so you know, you, you accuse the uh, new vegans, as you call them, of, of sort of broad brush. You know, that's I didn't exactly say what, nominally. Exactly, exactly. I said nominally at the beginning. You just, you just use the broad brush. You're trying to you're trying to vegan. trying to imply that all vegans or people interested in veganism are animal rights activists no. who throw bricks through windows. Actually, it's I'm not. I said at the beginning that I've got a lot of respect for vegans. So right. I think so, well, let's go back to what we yeah. agree with. So we all agree that factory farming is uh, something to do. But I think, to be honest, the rest of your argument is a kind of fantasy world. You know, what, what do you think people around the world eat? How are we going to feed 9 billion people? Are we going to do that on kind of free-range, grass-red, lovingly reared cattle? Absolutely well, not. Actually, and there's plenty of... Hang on, I gave you plenty of time to speak. Can you let me speak for a little sure. while? The, um, there's plenty of protein in the world. If we just feed soy and all the other uh, leguminous crops directly to people rather than feed it to a cattle at a ratio of, like, 1 to 10, um, then there's, there's plenty more ways of doing it. And also, I agree with you that processed food is not the most healthy food. Absolutely. But lots of people eat that. So we'd rather eat a processed beef burger from a factory farm or a processed burger that's made out of plants. 
but but this, these are where the issues are for me. And talking about kind of the new veganism as some sort of extreme fringe is ridiculous. Like half the people in this country are interested in eating less meat. That's, Jim, that's what veganism means today. Damien, what about Joanna's point that a lot of people have been motivated by documentaries which are fundamentally owe more to propaganda than empiricism? Is that... So that's true, yeah. There are problems with conspiracy and forks over knives and what the health and all the rest of it. And that's fine, you know, they're, they're kind of films, uh, campaigning films. The point is, if you go to uh, the United Nations um, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, where they have thousands of scientists around the world, it's a fact. 14.5% of emissions come from livestock. I write every year for the last you know, number of years from the peer-reviewed literature, scientists writing down the facts. They may, they may be inconvenient facts for Joanna's position, but they exist. You know, meat has a massive impact. You're right, it's factory farming, which is absolutely the problem. But, but factory but farming doesn't contribute to the greenhouse. Uh, I beg your pardon, no, it does. To, That's the biggest the methane. problem. Yes, cattle, that, cattle burp a lot. Yeah, but, Luke, but, that, but, that, but they would burp whether they were in, gra- in lovely grassy fields or in sheds, right? The, the factory farming component doesn't... OK, well, so if you want to dig into it, so the problem with uh, factory farming for cattle, in particular on the feedlots, which um, Joanna quite rightly says don't exist in the UK, uh, but exist in, in plenty of other parts of the world, is that they are fed on grain, and that grain is grown often on deforested land, and it's a very inefficient way of producing a, a food product. I want to pick up the point Rashim was making about legal advocacy for non-human animals. And they've had some success in Argentina and Colombia with a bear and a chimpanzee held in captivity. But are we really going to see this extend to people feeling that rights should be accorded to a cow or a sheep or a pig or any other farm animal? Is this a serious proposition or is this kind of slightly anthropomorphic fantasy? Well, animals under European law are already regarded as sentient i.e. feeling pain, and therefore that would imply that welfare was paramount. And I know that there was an attempt, I think, that that could have fallen out with Brexit, but I think good organisations like Compassion and World Farming fought that one off, I think. I hope I'm right there. So um, it's not as if we, you know, we have a legal system that says, yeah, you know what, animals don't matter, you can do whatever you, you want with them. And I really do think that to have a meaningful discussion about meat eating, dairy, egg production... We really can't start talking about chimpanzees or this is a sort of philosophical argument, it's ideological sorts of things. I think we have to try and be a bit sort of calmer and more level-headed, a bit more practical about it, really. I mean, the thing I'd say is that, you know, there are three reasons for being interested in this. One's about animal welfare, one's about your health, and one's about the environment. And the people you meet, and I've met plenty of them who come to veganism through a desire to end the suffering of animals, they have a different relationship, a different way of thinking about animals. You know, they, they feel them as equal beings, and that's how you get to this line of, you know, human rights for chimpanzees and things like that but these are a very small minority and, and so I think in terms of dealing with the very big issue of factory farming and the impact of uh, meat on the climate you know it's not really for my mind at least a helpful way to go you're listening to we need to talk about veganism coming up in the second half we discuss the changing perception of veganism the effect of big business and what might be holding the movement back Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. 
Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back to We Need to Talk About Veganism. In the first half, we discussed factory farming and veganism's potential impact on climate change and animal cruelty. Coming up next, health and the vegan identity. Well, let's move on now to this question of the health benefits of veganism. And we've heard lots of supporters who've urged us to focus on that. And we've got two here. There's Jackie and Dorothea with their thoughts. Well, I'm Jackie Martin. I work privately as a nutritionist with a science degree in human nutrition. Veganism for me comes from the health point of view first. I would just like to talk about the China study a bit where research has been done on a large country with different populations of people eating a different diet. And the results that came out of that was that people who eat a high animal protein diet are more likely to get cancer, heart disease, diabetes and obesity for all sorts of reasons. I would also add that doctors do not get a lot of training on nutrition. So it's highly likely that doctors don't know about this either. They get a huge amount of training on drugs and there's a huge amount of funding from drug companies. So there's not a lot of research going on in the protective effects of vegetables and fruit, for example. So we're up against it, really. You know, we've got this huge animal industry around the world that is like protected. And also human nature is that we, we follow the diet that we've always had, that our parents had. So it goes against the grain to say to someone, you know, don't eat too much animal protein. Hello, my name is Dorothea. I'm from London. I became a vegan six years ago after I did an internship with Compassion and World Farming, which is an organization that campaigns for sort of the end of factory farming. I would just say it had a really, really positive effect on my diet as well, which is not something that I really expected. But because I really looked into sort of what my body needed and how I had to make sure that I got all the nutrients I needed. I just started to eat so much better. I started cooking a lot more. And I did suffer from bulimia and anorexia for quite a long time as a, as a teenager and a young adult. And yes, since I became a vegan, it's been such a helpful tool for me to cope better with food and have a much more positive um, relationship with it. Mira, obviously we all know from a purely health perspective, if you eat too much meat, that's bad for you. But what actually is the evidence for the health benefits of veganism? Because, of course, you hear very, very different things from different people. I mean, Dorothea has obviously had a very positive experience. And we've heard other supporters talking about eczema and Qatar disappearing or period pain reducing or cholesterol ratios improving. Um, we have one supporter called Nadia. She said she used to be anemic all her life and she'd get turned away from donating blood and told her, go away and eat more broccoli. But now, as she's a vegan, doctors say her bloods are perfect. Are these cases kind of very particular? It's difficult to really be to extrapolate any clear messages. Or what can we say with confidence about the health implications of veganism? I think we can say with confidence that um, with a vegan diet, you know, you you have a lower body mass index. 
um, and that you're less at risk of cardiovascular diseases and less likely to develop type 2 diabetes. With regards to specific problems, there's lots of people talking about how you know it's helped them with those things that you mentioned, period pains or whatever it might be. But I think those are sort of case-by-case studies at the moment. I don't know if there's enough evidence that supports that. One of the areas of the vegan diet that's absolutely booming is, and we've touched on this already, the question of kind of processed vegan food, fake meat. And they are automatically sold as healthful because they are vegan. But how healthy or nutritious actually are these fake? I mean, do you want to tell you my take on the impossible Please do. burger? I mean, you've got a load of powder, which is essential pow- essentially powder protein of plant origin. Kind of pea powder. That yeah, pea that's sort of, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. You've got you've got a bit of soy. I seem okay. sure I can't be sure about that from memory. But basically, you start with a, in a factory with a load of powders. You then add glue. There's there's various sort of glue, so guar, you know, things that stick the thing together. Um, the you know usual sort of flavorings, colorings of processed food. And in the case of the Impossible Burger, this heme which is this novel ingredient, which, as far as I understand, it hasn't actually been approved by, uh, as safe. That's true, yet, but it doesn't, by the, f- the FDA. Be. Yeah, it doesn't have to be, which is a bit alarming. But um, And what I would say is if, if anyone... Um, yeah, we need long-term studies and trials to see if these, these ingredients are safe. But I think we're in danger with plant meat coming from the States, being in the same uh, situation as we were with GM food, where it's kind of pushed into the food supply. And then there's no, uh, no way of actually telling what sort of uh, the effect is. So I'll just take on uh, you know, Joanna's point there. So she's right, it's a heavily processed burger, but I've eaten two of them um, and they're really nice. So okay. delicious. Can I just ask you a question, yeah. though, Damien? Did you actually just eat the burger or did it have, you know, melting cheese and relish and, ch- you know, that sort of thing on it or cheesy well, stuff? I did, I did it both ways. You're right. Yeah. So by itself, it was kind of OK. I, I Kinds of OK. I liked okay. it. You know, it was better with the other things. I, I, but listen, I mean, <laughs> that's true of a beef so, burger. So Joanna and I obviously disagree on a number of things and that's absolutely fine. You know, it's great. But I, I was very happy to eat that burger because it was a treat for me. You know, it wasn't the thing I was going to eat for breakfast, dinner and tea every single day. But I was very happy that it wasn't, hadn't come from beef. You know, that was, that was what I was delighted by. And they're, and they're selling very well in well, what, America. Why, can I ask you why, why? I mean, you really totally won't eat any kind of beef at all ever. You know, that's, that's your position, is it? Well, it's not a position, it's a choice. I come at it entirely from an environmental point of view. Right. I'm not saying that you know there, there may there, there may be individual cows that are, are well treated and don't put much <laughs> impact on the world. But actually, the most recent bit of research that was published showed that even grass-fed cows have a pretty heavy impact. I just much rather eat a plant-based diet. That's my choice as an environmentalist. Mira, will you cook with these um, kind of fake meats? I, I certainly won't. No, I believe in eating real food, food. Yeah. identifiable, recognisable food, food. Yes, and and even if you wanted to create a burger, there's plenty of ways to be able to process real vegetables in order to be able to make mm-hmm. a patty if that was your thing um that's not to say that i don't think there's a place for them because people come to veganism for different reasons but i've just never been a fan of highly processed foods or things that taste like other things but aren't that thing <laughs> it doesn't really make sense to me some vegans and i think we had a guardian supporter called victoria who made this comment to us they don't understand why marketing vegan food as vegan chicken or like beef mm. would be or should be something that should appeal to us uh you know her position is 
if we were, I wouldn't want to salivate over something that's trying to taste like a bit of dead meat. You know, I want to say hooray for vegetables and fruit and pasta. Rosie, you're the vegan on this panel. Do you think there's something fundamentally wrong in wanting to eat something that tastes like chicken or like beef? No, I don't think so at all. I mean, that's what people are used to. Their diets are, you know, include animal products. And for people who are transitioning away from meat consumption or want to reduce their meat consumption, these products can be very helpful, I think, because it's something that, you know, they're used to and the kind of taste and how you, you cook the product. Um, and I think going back to the conversation before about these new companies that are coming out with these more advanced plant-based products, which are emulating meat in, you know, the nutritional profile Perhaps not, but they are emulating the look and the taste and that kind of sensory um, value that you get from meat. But they're not trying to be health products. I mean, they are burgers and, bur- you know, they're, they're trying to be a product for someone who wants to eat a delicious burger now and again. I think if you look at the impacts, going back to the environmental consequences point, I mean, Impossible Foods is a great example. They say that by not using beef, one of their burgers uses 95% less land, 74% less water, and reduces greenhouse gas emissions by 87%. So if people are simply swapping out a beef burger now and again for an Impossible Burger, then those environmental impacts are um, are clear. And I, yeah, I don't think it's helpful to polarise the debate. It's not about saying... All meat is bad, but reducing meat has positive impacts. So I agree, I agree with Mira that you know there are nice ways to make a patty if you want to do that. And I'd like yeah. to hear about some of the, the, those ideas. But um, just on this, I had an interesting experience. I was in San Francisco recently and uh, went to visit a lot of these companies. But I also spent the evening with the San Francisco Vegan Society, uh, which in San Francisco is very vegan. Uh, <laughs> and it was a lovely evening. They were so uh, welcoming. It was fantastic. And I asked at least a dozen of them what do you think about you know impossible burger kind of fake meats and all the rest of it thinking they'd all be absolutely horrified and literally not one of them were like all, all of them had the similar position actually to the vegan site in the uk which is it might be for me or it might not that varied but if it's a way to encourage other people whose diets are less uh, or more familiar eating meat then they, they were pretty happy with that you know i was surprised I met one guy later on uh, in my trip visit there who just thought it was a crazy idea but um, I think trying to market fake meat to people who are already conviction vegans mm. is ridiculous right they're not going to do that but this is not who it's it's a conversion at. tool well it's not yeah. even a conversion tool it's just an alternative right they're not trying to convert them to veganism they're just trying to give them an option to eat less meat if they choose to do so if we are trying to convert people to veganism or away from environmentally damaging factory farming then Obviously, the fake meat industry presents itself as a tool in that box. But, Mira, your position is much more that we should stop either trying to tempt people away with fake food or harangue and harass and, and lecture people and sort of present veganism or, or a plant-based diet as a worthy alternative. Mm. You're much more interested in presenting it as something that's actually fun and appealing and delicious and exciting and... And to change people's idea about what constitutes a meal, to get away from the idea that there needs to be a slab of meat on your plate for it to be a meal. Yeah. What's been the most effective way you've found to do that, to get people to reinvent their notion of what a meal looks like? Well, I um, see so my position is if we're looking at behavioural change, which is, I guess, what we're talking about, that there are two ways that you can go about it. One is sort of, you know, hitting people on the head with all the arguments all the time. 
and and they do appear all the time um you know whether it's about veganism or health and health related to food and you know a different revelation will appear every single day for example this morning i was sat on the tube next to a man reading the daily mail and um there was a banner on the top saying why you know you must eat a pot of yogurt every week <laughs> and he didn't turn to the particular story so i didn't find out exactly why we should be eating yogurt but um so i, f- I feel that i feel that for me food my, my relationship to food is very joyful very pleasurable um and the way that i want to help people um or, or to help the environment um is is just to show people how incredibly delicious vegetables can be and for so long those vegetables have been relegated to the side of our plate or they've been boiled notoriously and 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 actually you know my my family come from Gujarat Um, it's a state on the west coast of India in 269 BC Emperor Shaka outlawed the slaughter of any animal in the name of Ahimsa or peace and since then that's the majority of of the people who live there have been vegetarian and so for centuries this incredible way of eating this vegetable first way of eating has evolved which is very different to this meat and two veg way of eating and so I suppose what I'm trying to do is just show people how they can put vegetables in the center of the table. Can I ask me a question because um, I've, I've been to Gujarat and you're right when you travel there the, the food's amazing you know um, the, the main problem I had was uh, the people who I was traveling with who were Indians thought that I was going to faint if I didn't eat meat so they, they kind of kept trying to find me meat and I'm saying no, no it's fine <laughs> you know this food's really delicious but the question I was going to ask you is what's, what's, what would you suggest as a killer dish like if you had someone who was a bit skeptical about it you know what sort of what, I mean I'm putting you on the spot but what, what, what might you try and serve up for them to say you know try this and see how delicious it can be um a winning dish that's tricky (laughs) i think um things that i've served that have gone down very well one of the most popular recipes in my column has been the sprout nasi goreng wow so that's a malaysian fried rice dish so i mean a lot of people love fried rice i grew up eating it and the sprouts i think you know a lot of people have a bad relationship with sprouts because they've been boiled for so long um but if you've chop them up very finely and fry them really hard with garlic and lemon juice and cumin they can just turn transform into this incredibly delicious thing uh, so that's a very popular recipe uh, one that i like to serve people at home is a gujarati recipe and that's stuffed baby aubergines and they're stuffed with peanuts and coconut so they're very uh, satisfying and in a way quite meaty but because they're quite substantial and because aubergines can really transform in so many you know they they can take on different textures and different flavors depending on what you do with them and when you cook them very slowly the flesh of an aubergine can become impossibly creamy and very delicious i'm getting hungry joanna where do you stand on uh, the latest trend to try and make us all feel that a steak of cauliflower (laughs) on our plate constitutes a kind of cuisine centrepiece. I think that's a great way of making money for Marks and Spencer's, actually. (laughs) Um, I mean, I'm really, you know, interested in what Mira is saying. You know, the food is wonderful you're talking about. I'd just like to remind remind us, though, that, um, you know, there's this increasingly binary sort of opposition being posed between meat eaters who are meant to eat only meat and healthy vegans who are eating lots of vegetables. And I, I mean, I said at the beginning, I'm, a, I'm, an, I'm an omnivore. I didn't call myself a carnivore. So I would routinely in a week be eating the sort of dishes you're talking about, Mira. And um, I, I suppose going beyond that, I'm unhappy with the idea that um, meat is unhealthy, that animal products are not as healthy. Um, first of all, on a sort of 
basic way. I find it really hard to think that Mother Nature designed foods that would shorten the lifespan of the human race. It, it doesn't seem logical. And what I see around me is a lot of people deserting traditional eating patterns, which would have included meat and fish and so on, and going on to a diet which I think is, I, I doubt, is as healthy. So I, I am concerned about the number of people, for example, we now hear babies being weaned on, on, on almond milk, which, by the way, has, if you're lucky, two and a half percent almonds in it. Um, we, you know, this, this, this sort of, uh, it, it seems to me that there, we're doing a huge experiment with our diets and we're throwing away the sort of um, folk knowledge, the experience of cultures all around the world who, which have relied since time immemorial uh, on, on animal foods. And just, just to give you an example, if you were to look up um, what are the world's most, you know, the most nutritious foods you can eat, you come up with animal foods. I'm, I'm pretty sure it would be eggs, liver, and uh, something like sardines, oily fish. Can I just say something on that? So uh, interesting, and I think, I mean, I, as, far, as far as I'm aware, having you know, written a, a reasonable amount about it, it's perfectly healthy, sorry, it's perfectly possible to have a healthy vegan diet, it's perfectly possible to have a healthy vegetarian diet, and it's perfectly possible to have a healthy meat-eating diet. But the, the reality is that in almost all developed countries, people eat more meat than the national dietary guidelines, which are laid down by the health authorities. And it's hugely more meat in many cases, and that's very clearly that's very clearly linked to ill health. Uh, bacon, in particular, because of the way they cure it, because it's not you know, Mother's Nature's provision; it's this kind of uh, curing process, um, which is rather damaging. So, yeah, I think it's perfectly possible to have a healthy meat diet, but it doesn't have a lot of meat in it. Yeah, I, I'd agree with Damien. I, again, I think making the debate binary isn't helpful. And actually, for me, the most interesting thing uh, in the, terms of the developments that have happened the past couple of years is that growing section of the population who want to reduce their meat consumption. They're not re- eliminating it entirely. Um, and this kind of movement of flexitarians, which has developed. And I think that shift is supported by um, analysis by various organizations such as the world health Organi- world health organization who have said you know reducing red and processed meat in particular re- results in improved health outcomes yeah but if you look at that study you know which is trotted out left right and center which one um the the world health or the, the so-called evidence that says that red meat is bad for you is based on sort of diet people filling in their own diet surveys etc it doesn't make a distinction between processed cooked uh, you know, a burger from a burger chain, and um, you know, some the equivalent from a from a grass reared animal from a small farmer. So again, it, I I really I I my I please can we please try and refine these arguments? I mean, I hear in this debate, I hear I think probably about the same six six statistics. Um, trotted out and usually by this time in any sort of discussions we've kind of moved on a bit and people do need to challenge even the UN you know is is lobbied and 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 it's not lobbied necessarily by small-scale farmers Uh, it's lobbied by big companies with financial interests and they're often corn companies and companies that um, produce grains and they're really very happy to get in on the 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 sort of plant-based vegan so you know say that the meat industry is a massive subsidized lobby around the world as well well, they're they're hardly going to be twisting the arm of the who who are pretty respectable i'd like nothing like the the clout of Joanna, I'm going to move this on from the question of health and the environment and economics 
to the more personal question of the social identity of veganism. Um, we're going to hear from a supporter called Olivia on the subject of vegan identity, and then Dorothea, who we just heard, who has a question on this as well. Hi, I'm Olivia. I live in Clapham in London. What I wanted to say is that I really agree with Becker's piece in The Guardian about it being not the diet, but the identity of being vegan. Other people, when they sit down to eat, don't need to out themselves as meat eaters or whatever dietary requirements they have. But as a vegan, you have to do that. You have to put your hand up and say, actually, I do have dietary requirements. And not only that, but I chose these dietary requirements for myself. And that, I think, really irks people who think vegans are pushy and all they want to do is talk about veganism and teach other people to be vegan, which I don't think is the case at all. I think it's a choice for themselves to have less impact on the environment for themselves. And it's, it's not about preaching to people about the benefits of veganism. The thing that I wanted to actually put to the panel is uh, I found it quite interesting that the vast majority of vegans are female. And I wonder if that's one of the reasons why I've often seen as sort of just another diet, even though probably the vast majority um, go vegan for ethical reasons. I've witnessed in my personal life that quite often men are sort of admired as being principled when they go vegan, whereas women are often belittled, they're criticized or even ridiculed. And I just wonder what the panel makes of that and if that's maybe one of the reasons why veganism gets such a bad reputation sometimes. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? I've also heard lots of people dismiss veganism as a, a kind of hipster's eating disorder, that it's sort of camouflage for weight loss, but trying to be passed off as a kind of ethical, altruistic activity. Uh, and I know lots of vegans take enormous exception to this. Rosie, I'm curious, are you aware of this gender divide in veganism? Um, not in the way that the listener described, actually. I've seen the opposite happen in that women are more accepted when they say that they have a vegan diet because it's seen as, you know, to be linked with the animal welfare implications, for instance. Um, and it's more common. There are more women who are vegans. And there's also an interesting link between kind of men and um, masculinity and meat. And it's seen as kind of... Uh, um, unmasculine thing perhaps to not want to eat meat um, so I've actually seen it the other way around. Mira have you come across that? Uh, I haven't actually but I agree with Rosie um, you know meat is often seen as dude food isn't it so I can see how people automatically assume that it would be for principled reasons that you're giving veganism a go as opposed to diet related reasons. I think in terms of you know going to friends houses say and being a pain saying you know you're a vegan like we're a nightmare my wife is vegan uh, my daughter's celiac and i don't really mind but uh we're kind Never of come to anybody no exactly well, i'm not coming you. to yours am i Decker? but um <laughs> but the thing is you know if, if do you not who... mind showing up as a family and being that really annoying family at the dinner table does that not no, bother you no because i think the actual experience is different right so if someone likes you and cares about you enough to invite you to their house then they're presumably willing to um you know make an effort with what they with what they think you i remember a friend of mine who was a vegan uh, turned up to meet his girlfriend's parents for the first time and his mother had also been so freaked out by this he she said hello vegan uh, <laughs> when she met him on the doorstep rather than hello alan which was actually 
actually his name. Um, so I can kind of understand that. But actually, in the broader terms, which we're generally talking about, that half of people who are interested in eating less meat, yeah, most of them are flexible. Joanna, what do you think? To come back to your ori- original question, I do think there is a, a sort of newer constituency of younger people who are concerned about weight and think that a vegan diet is, is, is sort of morphed into a new, a new sort of diet eating plan that's going to, to take that box. And what I see is a, a lot of people living on a very, very high carbohydrate diet. And again, I would differ from the argument that, you know, meat and animal products make you fat. I would say that there's now very good evidence that high carbohydrate diets, particularly refined of the kind you get in vegan products as well as ultra processed foods, are, you know, causing, pushing obesity, type 2 diabetes and so on. If you are going to be a vegan, I think you need to be a cook. And with I'm with Mira on this. You have to cook. You have to understand food. If you just want to go in and behave like the average uninformed meat eater and pick up any old packet off the shelves, then I don't think you're going to end up slim and I don't think you're going to end up healthy either. Yeah, I think we're in a whole new playing field when it comes to vegan food and understanding what's healthy and what's not there's a lot of recipes that I look at that they use you know a lot of peanut butter for example like you know, huge yeah. quantities of peanut butter and you know I used to work for a charity looking into malnutrition and pulpy nut is peanut butter and that's what it's the quickest thing that they could use to feed malnourished children to get them back up to a healthy weight again so you know vegan food isn't necessarily health food and there's obviously a lot of deep fried junk vegan food around okay we're going to hear from our last three supporters about elements of veganism they feel are not helping the cause my name is Ben Williamson. I'm Senior International Media Director for People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, better known as Peter. Well, the number one thing that vegans do wrong is placing personal purity ahead of pragmatism. So we know that convincing just one more person to go vegan will save twice as many animals. And we know that the number one reason why people don't go vegan is that they don't think that it's a convenient enough thing or they so-called can't give up cheese or ice cream or, or bacon or whatever it be. But instead of making it easier for them to help animals, we vegans often make it more difficult because instead of encouraging them to stop eating all animal-derived products except for cheese, ice cream or bacon, we, we preach to them about the oppression of animals on, on farms. And then we go on about how we won't eat a veggie burger because of the bun, even though it's just a tiny bit of butter in a bun, which contributes to significantly less suffering than any non-organic fruit or vegetable, a plastic bottle, or about 100 other things that most of us use every day. Our obsession with ingredients is obscuring the animal suffering, but it's also essentially guaranteeing that those around us are not going to make any changes at all. So in a sense, we've preserved our personal purity, but we're actually hurting animals. My name's Ros Webb, and I'm from London. I've been vegan for nearly 30 years for the planet and for everything on it. And I'm half delighted and half worried about veganism moving into the mainstream. So up until a few years ago, if you bought something vegan, it would have been pretty much guaranteed to have been made by a small ethical company, It was often fair trade. The packaging was minimal or recyclable. I could be pretty sure as well that the people who made it were treated well and well paid and that the planet as a whole was considered as well as the sort of most basic definition of veganism being 
not eating animals. I'm worried that the more the big companies have pound signs before their eyes as their motivation, the more the compassion behind veganism that to me is the most important thing will will get lost. Hi, this is Thomas Lewis from Birmingham. I want to bring up my belief that at the moment there is no political movement surrounding veganism. I believe until we can have actual proper organisation from grassroots and single issue causes, all the way up to large umbrella big tent institutions, we can't really move forward as a movement. The best case studies for sort of movement building are the civil rights movement in the US and the gay rights movement in the UK. They have organisations such as the NAACP and also Stonewall. Forming organisations such as this would be far more beneficial. I feel as though if I wish the campaign for vegan school meals in my city, for example, there's nowhere in the UK I could go to actually get any legal assistance. The Vegan Society doesn't have a legal team in this sense. At the moment, it's an outreach program. My question to the panel is, in what direction does the UK need to be going in in order to have real vegan institutionalism and real community support? Rosie, I wonder if I can pick up with you Ben's point about this question of purity versus pragmatism. Is he right? Are vegans shooting themselves in the foot by being so consumed by the purity of their position? Well, I'd agree definitely with Ben's point that it's not helpful to be dogmatic about this and actually the vegan movement should be inclusive and it should be about kind of meeting people where they are and it's definitely a lot easier to get more people to reduce their meat consumption rather than uh, getting a lot of people to go vegan and indeed that shift is what has been driving the demand for plant-based products and why we've seen kind of a broader availability of these kind of products on the market and companies um, looking into this as a way to drive growth so I agree, but I think the interesting thing about um, the vegan movement now is that it has become inclusive. And I think, as Damien said before, that percentage of uh, vegans who are very dogmatic about their approach and it's a kind of all or nothing stance is um, is dwindling and is very small. Mary, do you get grief from hardcore vegans who think that um, you're not the real deal because for two days a week you might eat um, animal product? Well, yeah, I do. I, I understand their position. You know, it's it's not just about a diet. It's an ideology and it's it's a way of life for so many people. So I can understand why they're, why they're angry that a non-vegan is writing and you can call them. And that makes sense. But my my position is that I'm just trying to help people eat as many vegetables as possible. And I'm here to sort of show them how. Um, and hopefully that is a useful tool, whether you're vegan or, you, you know, you're trying to reduce the amount of meat that you're eating or that you're, you know, you're flexitarian. So I still think that's that's a useful thing. I think that point about purity kind of comes into what Ros was saying in the clip there as well, that she was, you know, long-term, very committed uh, vegetarian who was worried that... Oh, sorry, vegan, beg your pardon. Um, who was worried that, you know, the new vegan products are being produced by very large companies. And, you know, Joanna talked about this before as well in terms of, you know, being quite a profitable business. But I think I think there's a problem of purity there as well in that we're not, we're not saying that everyone out there is going to be eating, you know, kind of small artisan-provided or produced food right most people out there are eating factory farm food right the vast majority of people are eating the vast majority of factory farm food you know battery chickens pigs in stalls the whole thing so you know to my mind uh, and i'm sure others will disagree but to my mind replacing that with you know a processed vegan product from a company which may be of size or may not be that seems like a big win may not be the perfect answer but it seems like a big win but it's progress joanna do you share <clears throat> Do you share Ros's concern that we have companies who are trying to kind of appropriate 
the halo of veganism, so to speak, whilst actually practising deeply unethical practices in terms of their business model, their relationship with the environment, etc. I'm not sure that's actually true yeah. that any companies, I don't know of any companies that are practising deeply unethical practices with their... So, I mean, a simple one would be to take something like um, if you choose to use uh, bananas that aren't fair trade... Uh, that's a big company that can afford to buy fair trade bananas isn't making an ethical decision. It's t- turning a blind eye to... Um, Fine, you know, I'm not aware of any companies of producing vegan products that are... I think it's a largely positive thing that, that companies, you know, whether they're driven by profit or not, which they clearly are, are actually, you know, I mean, Waitrose, for example, are bringing out 50 new vegan products uh, this week, I think. Um, and I think that's brilliant because if you are choosing to adopt a vegan diet, then... It's helpful to be able to have something that's on the go, um, that's readily available. Uh, Even if it's served up in plastic and... uh, Well, I think there's a huge... Now that we know um, that all our plastic sort of ends up in landfill or in the ocean, I think, you know, these huge companies will have to change their ways anyway. Um, Whether they're selling a vegan product or or an animal-based product. So that is... It's just moving forward. And whether it can move forward quickly enough... I don't know, you know, I don't know what the availability is of um, viable alternatives to package up food. Um, it's obviously really disappointing when I, you know, buy fruits and vegetables that they come encased in plastic. But um, it's very, if you, if you it's, I think these companies are making, that, you know, they're making investments in vegan food. They're, they're helping people along with their vegan diet. It means that they can stay vegan uh, if they're out and about and not at home cooking. I think there probably will be huge, you know, there's, there's a huge amount of pressure already on those big businesses to reduce the amount of plastic that they're using um, and to take a much more holistic approach. So that, that change will happen, whether it's happening now or not. You know, obviously it's not happening quick enough. Rosie, this question of worth needing a stronger campaigning umbrella group or advocacy organisation I mean you're, you are active you're, your foundation works in this field is it true that does it feel to you as if you're operating in a world where you're all too politically dissipated and that there needs to be greater unity or would you think that's actually not the case at all? I think that's changing actually um, whether a group is coming at this issue from health implications and environmental implications or the animal welfare impacts there's kind of this growing consensus that we need to be looking at diets and looking at shifting diets away from animal protein so I think that's starting to happen already actually no matter what the the kind of the focus for the for the NGO or group is. What is the future of veganism? I want to go around the panel and I just want a prediction. Long ago it was completely fringe, slightly weirder, slightly wacky, now it feels totally mainstream. What's next? Mira, start with you. Uh, Well, I think it's already undergoing uh, an image transformation, so it's no longer associated with, you know, people wearing hemp trousers, knitting their own jumpers. Uh, I think it's in terms of food, there'll just be more availability um, and more knowledge, and so people will... Um, I hope know you know how to put vegetables in front and center of their diet. It will no longer be just vegan food, but there might be Japanese vegan food or um, French vegan food or Italian vegan food. And I think there will be room in the market for people who you know want to eat the bleeding beyond meat burger um, and people who just you know choose to eat just a vegetable based diet. Uh, but I feel like it's going to be much more encompassing in the future. Rosie. Yeah, I would agree with Mira, actually. I think the key thing for me is that choice for the consumer. There's going to be much broader products on the shelves, whether you want to buy a 
plant-based burger or you know not too far on the horizon something like cultured meat is there um, or just you know more innovative ways to use vegetables and recipes which um, enables people to reduce their meat consumption so I think variety and diversification of protein sources is key. Damien where do you think we're heading? I, I actually don't think the number of kind of pure if you want to use that word or you know total 100% vegans will rise very much at all actually I think uh, the, the flexitarians or pe- the people if you want to use that word who, who will rise uh, more and people will eat uh, less meat for all these different reasons factory farming you know health environmental reasons I got a pizza leaflet through my door a couple of days ago and it had five vegan pizzas on it right I mean I live in Clapham right so maybe that's <laughs> maybe that's why but that felt like something's changing you know there's more choice out there and I think more people will take those options and if they do choose to eat meat they'll you know select good cuts of meat and and and, you know well-produced meat joanna everyone else on the panel has described a future that i think they feel excited about (laughs) optimistic can't wait for um do you share their vision of the future and do you share their enthusiasm for it (laughs) i I mean from memory vegans have always been around one percent of the in terms of british population anyway so there's lots of room for that to expand before it really um, constitutes a, 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 a big uh, section of the population. Um, I think a lot of people will current, you know, experiment with veganism for one way or another and come out the other end. Um, I think I would just simply restate that I think that vegans, vegetarians, responsible omnivores should shake hands and agree on one thing, that we have to oppose factory farming. And we shouldn't be arguing uh, a simplistic meat or animal food versus veganism, which is extreme. We should be saying, where can we agree and where can we work together? And that, that, that kind of future does excite me. And with that, I'm afraid it's time for me to bring proceedings to a close. I'd like to thank the panel, Joanna Blytheman, Mira Soda, Rosie Wardle and Damien Carrington. And I'd of course like to thank all the Guardian supporters who provided our questions and shared their thoughts. Thank you for your generosity and your time. And I hope you feel that we addressed some of the issues that you thought were important. If you'd like to contribute to our next podcast, you can of course sign up to become a Guardian supporter. Just head to membership.theguardian.com for more info. And if you're already one of the hundreds of thousands who support our work, thank you. And do keep an eye out for the next podcast call-out in the next couple of weeks. If you'd like to email us with ideas for what we should tackle next, you can do that at weneedtotalkaboutattheguardian.com. I've been Deck Rakenhead, and We Need to Talk About Veganism was produced by Stuart Silver. Until next month, goodbye. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. 
Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.